Word of God, and it is to be believed and obeyed. This is God's only revelatory message to man across the globe. The 66 books which make up the one book, and it truly is one book, known as the Bible. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And so when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or uncommon has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God hath made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he has gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they had heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance, repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled so far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord and the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's bow our heads and, and pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, once again we approach you this, the Lord's Day, where your church across this globe will gather to meet and worship your Son Jesus and to celebrate the redemption that they've found in Christ alone. So we pray this day for our church here at Christ Community Church in Sterling Heights, that you will help us to see the beauty of Christ and that we will leave this place to live for your honor and glory alone. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The book of Acts, I think it has an appropriate name. Um, there are a lot of actions that are taking place. Even once again in chapter 11, there is a, a great deal of action. It is, it's the action of the apostles. Um, it's the action of the church. And I'm talking about people. People are the church. And so all of these titles that people give it, it's, it's all appropriate. And, um, you know, as we, you begin to try to capture the magnitude of what's taking place here and what's going on in these settings, the focus this morning being Jerusalem and Antioch, um, what took place last week when, when Peter went to Cornelius and Cornelius was converted to Christ and those in his household were also had received Jesus by faith being a Gentile, it brought on no small controversy. This is a controversy that was of a large magnitude. We will see this in the weeks to come because it's going to lead um, us to Acts chapter 15, just turn there real quick. 
Acts 15. I just want to read this. And here's the controversy. We know that um, Cornelius was a Gentile. We have read there in Acts chapter 11, the first half, which is a recapitulation of Acts chapter 10. He's just retelling the story as he goes back to Jerusalem and this controversy arises. And, and I want to give you this to never lose sight of this as we're moving through this. Here's the controversy, the first controversy that the early church experienced. Chapter 15, verse 2. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay? And being saved is the most essential question that all of us must answer for ourselves. And so we'll get to that. Um, and, and, and once again, we're diving into that uh, this morning back at Acts chapter 11. And so in Acts chapter 11, what you have is in the first half is Peter going back to the church that's in Jerusalem to address his gathering with um, Cornelius. And, and here's the indictment that's made in verse 3 of these, these Hellenist Jews. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in the order. First of all, I want you to know this. What Peter did, the law of God did not, it wasn't forbidden. Okay? So, these circumcision party of Jews, which would have been a part of the temple, and many of them are being converted. I want you to think about this. There's a, there's a mass of people. I mean, only the Lord knows how many exactly are, are being converted. Again, because the book of Acts is telling us the gospel narrative as the church is progressing. It's not telling us every story, but this is very controversial. It's got Peter back on the edge of his heels, right? Because he was somewhat confused. You remember in the trance, he's like, oh man, I can't eat that, Lord. And the Lord has to tell him three times, no, you eat. Don't call uncommon what I have made clean. And we, know, we saw last week, it really wasn't about food. This is about people. That the gospel is going to people, and those people include, of course, the Gentiles. In the second half of this chapter, we know that Saul, because the scene has left him, in Acts chapter 10 last week, he has gone on to Tarsus because at his conversion, as he begins to preach in synagogues, soon thereafter, the people of the circumcision party of the Jews, unbelievers, they seek to kill him. In what irony, he is the leader of that originally. He's killing the church, and now he gets converted by the grace of God. And so Paul who will become Paul, he's mentioned here as Saul in this chapter, um, goes along with Barnabas to the second half of the chapter. And in the first half of the chapter, you're dealing with Jerusalem. In the second half of the chapter, you're dealing with Antioch. 
And through this, as we're moving through this, and, and, and again, just as last week, it talks about the preaching of the gospel takes place like six or seven times. There are more and more people being added to the Lord. There is a radical, radical conversions that are taking place through persecution. Okay? Christians are being killed. Stephen's already been killed. Others are being pursued to be killed. And so, through this, the birth of the church is beginning to expand. Just as we saw last week from Matthew chapter 28, when he looks at the disciples and he says, Look, you're going to take the gospel and you're going to make disciples of every nation and when you make disciples of every nation, you will baptize them, and then you will teach those people to observe all the commands that Christ has given them. Of course, this becomes the fulfillment of the New Testament. How does that happen? Through the planning of churches. Matthew chapter 28 is the planning. It's, it's God's only plan. He's never had a plan B. It's his only plan to convert the world through the gospel and the gospel then uh, believed on. There's these church plants. Now, through this, and you know this, just a casual read of the New Testament, there is a large motif given in the New Testament that describes the Christian life to a warfare, a spiritual warfare. Each of us that have believed on Christ are engaged in a spiritual warfare, personally. That battlefront is dealing with the remaining sin that we have. But then it's also true for us as a body of believers, where in that spiritual warfare, we are taking the gospel into a dark world as the children of light take the gospel of light to convert children of darkness from the dark world. And, and again, that motif as you're looking through this, probably some of you are thinking Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor of God. I mean it's endless. Because you really are, if you're a genuine convert of Jesus, you're, you're engaged in spiritual warfare of dealing with your own sin, and then also as a church family because this is God's unique plan, local churches. And yet this war, when we think of war, we think of bombs and we think of you know, guns and, and certainly knives as people war with. That's not what we war with. We war with words. We war with gospel words. We war with the words of God. Our weapons are, are the water and the bread and the wine. That's, that's what we're taking, and that's what we're, we're gaining a strength in. So we're going to move through Acts chapter 11 in two fronts. I want you to think of this this way. You're going to think about the church and the gospel as we're casually reading, as it's spreading, and then we're going to look at the church and the means of grace 
that, that God has given us for the warfare that we are in personally and yet as well collectively. All right? The church and the gospel and the church and the means of grace. Again, there are two central churches that are made up here. We know that Peter, in the first 18 verses, goes back um, to give a report that the Gentiles have received the word of God in verse 1. And so he goes back to Jerusalem, and there's no doubt in my mind, because, you know, Peter's a little bit of a fearful guy. He's a big mouth, right? He's got a little Barney Fife in him. He'll run his mouth, but he's a little, he gets a little chicken sometimes. If you read the book of um, Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, this controversy leads ahead and Paul just like jumps him because he's reverting back uh, to Judaism uh, type things and, and he did so out of fear. He, didn't fear. he wasn't fearing God in those moments and he was, he was living under the fear of man. So you have the Jerusalem church, which is Jewish-based, predominantly Jewish, and then we transition here to the church in Antioch. And let me just give this uh, to you. Look at verse 19. Now those that were scattered because of the persecution there arose over Stephen, right? When Stephen was martyred, traveled to Phoenicia, churches were established there, uh, uh, to Cyprus and to Antioch. So you have Jerusalem and Antioch. And here's the significance of that for this church this transition, because the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. The Antioch church is, becomes mostly Gentile. And so when you think of Antioch in the New Testament era, you're thinking about a very sophisticated city. Something like, you know, what New York is probably the greatest city, you know, in the world except for the Detroit Lions today. And San Francisco is going to find that out. But, but in Antioch, again, to, to try to understand what's going on, because God's converting, right? There's, there is a mass amount of people, right? Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed on the Lord. And then back to verse 18, Then to the Gentiles also granted, God has granted repentance to life and and down in verse 26, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. There's just this mass amount of people, and Antioch's made up of pagan worship. And Antioch was the city itself, and the world, those who did not believe, were uh, involved in all sorts of perversions in a, in a sexual, ethic way. Even so, even in, in many of their pagan worship, please listen to this, there were, there were orgies going on. Now that's all going to reach its head that we'll, when we'll get on down the road, but we want to kind of want to get an idea of what's going on here. So God's converting in Jerusalem. There's the per persecution that's going on. It's causing uh, uh, disciples and apostles uh, to scatter. Most of the apostles had stayed back, but as the disciples go out, they're preaching the gospel. Let me show you one more group of people down to verse 27. I want to make mention of this because you're, it says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, this is not an Old Testament prophet. This is a New Testament prophet. You'll see a parallel to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. 
and a New Testament prophet was this. When the New Testament was, was being written, as the gospel was going to the globe, God would give men and women alike a revelatory immediate message. We'll see that Philip had four daughters later in Acts who prophesied. That is, in the moment to authenticate the message of the gospel and to the establishment of churches, God would give them a message. There is no more revelatory message going on today. Um, the New Testament has been completed. We are in a unique time in redemptive history when the plan that Jesus created back to Matthew 28, and then he tells them before he ascends, you're going to get the gifts and the baptism through the Holy Spirit's going to come in Acts chapter 2. We witnessed it in Acts chapter 10. We looked at it last week when it goes to the ends of the earth. This is all accompanying the New Testament church. But the reason why this is so controversial is because man had created his own hatred for his brothers. And I'm talking about just humanity, not brothers in Christ. And yet you, you can't tame this. You know, Jesus is a lion. He's a, he's a devourer. When, when God converted you through Christ, he has devoured your life. There is no room in any Christian's life that Christ himself does not invade. We're all wrestling with that. That's the personal warfare that's going on, and yet there's this gospel warfare that's going on because... The Jews and Gentiles are being converted alike, and yet now you've got to have this answer. Listen to these words, and you can write this down for you note takers. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. The mystery is, this is the Apostle Paul would write this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You and I together are witnessing this now. To me, this book is captivating. The early church was, was made up of the apostles. To be an apostle, we know that one had to see Jesus Christ not only resurrected, but that Jesus commissioned them uniquely as an apostle. There are no more apostles because apostles had to visibly see Jesus in his resurrected body. There are the elders and pastors. There are, there are deacons, as we've witnessed, both men and women alike, in, in Philip and in Stephen and Tabitha. And then there's just God's people. Just ordinary God's people, us. Just taking Jesus house to house. And, and in the book of Acts, here's what you hear called. We hear it displayed here. They're either known, Christians are either known as Christians. I think it's three times in the book of Acts. Christians mean, right, they are, they are a part of the, the sect 
S-E-C-T, of, of Christ, or they were also known as the way. So, you know, something's happening over here in Cyprus. Oh yeah, those are people of the way. Now undoubtedly, I think they got called that because it was ringing in those apostles' ear that Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father except through, through me. And that early attack on the early church was an attack on the gospel message itself. And it's being played out in meetings where these self-righteous, stiff-necked, Religious people are looking at Peter and saying, what in the world were you doing eating with Gentiles? I mentioned this to you last week. For many of the Gentiles, they thought the fires of hell, or many of the Jews, they thought the fires of hell were fueled by Gentile flesh. I don't know that we can comprehend the intense hatred, though we witness a lot of hatred every day on the news and everything else. Certainly, hatred shouldn't be a part of our lives. Not for people who are converted to Jesus. Amen? Shouldn't be, should it? Well, that's just weird. Yeah, yeah, you know Kevin. Yeah, he's a hater. He hates this group. That's just weird. Right? That, that's an oxymoron to Christianity. But I don't want you to miss this. Right? The, the miraculous and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because that's what we're going to kind of look at now, is taking place at Jerusalem in chapter 2, in Judea and Samaria in Acts chapter 10, and then we'll get there one day to Acts chapter 19 to the ends of the earth. What is taking place here is a cultural phenomenon like the world has never seen before. The revolution of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is invading the world and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, though they are, they are threatened with their very lives. That's why, Christian, we need not fear. We need not fear of what's going on in our own culture. Jesus the King has you in his kingdom. Now, I, like you, want the preservation of freedoms and those such things in this society. I'm telling you it doesn't matter. Because you belong to the king. And the evangelism that exploded in your soul is now taking place in a miraculous way. And, of course, we're seeing the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues or rather, I, I really think they're speaking in languages. So through this gospel expansion, what's accompanying this, just as Jesus would say, is churches are born. Churches are born. Without the planning of churches, the gospel root will die. It'll die. Because God's plan is make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to observe. That happens in the church. 
It's happening in Jerusalem. It's now happening in other areas. And Antioch becomes our focus here because Antioch was the largest city. It was in Syria. And it's the gateway to the expansion of the gospel. The Ignatian way that the Roman Empire built through, through the streets. They thought they were building to conquer the world. God used it to conquer the world with the gospel. And here's just an interesting note about this. Look back again to verse 26. For a whole year now, Saul and Barnabas go there, and they're preaching to the church that's in Antioch, and they teach a great many people because God's just converting people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called, were first called Christians. As this is taking place, Antioch was, was the gateway to the, to the rest of the world. Again, it was, a, it was a sophisticated town, right? It was well-developed. It had all sorts of, of people of all races that, that lived and did business there. And, of course, it was a part of the Roman Empire in the New Testament period. And in the Roman Empire, there was a specific day of the week known as the Emperor's Day. And on the emperor's day, the emperor of Rome was to be worshipped by all the people that were a part of the Roman Empire. It was known as the emperor's day. And, and the emperors of Rome, if you read about it throughout all history, they thought of themselves to be God, right? And so they would readily receive worship that they were godlike over against the subjects that were in their kingdom, people who were a part of the Roman Empire. To kind, of, to kind of give you a glimpse of what's going on here, there were so many Christians and so many churches being um, developed throughout all of Asia Minor. And again, Antioch, the, the church at Antioch, the Gentile church, was the gateway to Asia Minor, that when you get to Revelation chapter 1, we're talking about an about, let's say max, 20 to 30 year expansion. There were so many Christians who said they would not worship the emperor. The emperor's day was changed to the Lord's day. That's how we get, this is called the Lord's day. You can see this, it's in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Don't you dare turn there now. That's for later. For yourself. So looking at this, though, the church is expanding. The, the church is expanding through the, 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 the making of disciples according to the Great Commission, Jesus, just as Jesus had proclaimed, and, and Jesus told his apostles... As he would ascend into heaven, um, he would send them the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I gave you a little bit last week about the Holy Spirit creates our union with God. It's an act of God where the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. And yet, in this period, there's a unique thing that's going on. And I, I just want to say th some things about the Holy Spirit, because there's always a lot of confusion. People get confused by what they see on television or, or radio or 
perhaps you've gone even to a, you know, a certain type of low church, charismatic type revival or even service. There's just a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit and quite honestly, it's because there's a lot of abuse. And through the abuse of the teaching of the Holy Spirit, here's what a lot of Christians have done is, is we just step back where they're right because they use terminology like, and God said to me, or the Lord told me, and then everybody gets on chill and ice like, well, who am I to challenge that? He said the Lord told them. It just gets weird. And so from that, we really neglect the Holy Spirit. And all sorts of heresy and perversions have come up through our neglect because in some teaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, people say they are the haves and the have-nots. That, that some Christians have the Holy Spirit and some Christians do not have the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a lie. There's also, I think, particularly in, in our own nation, this desire for an extra experience. And I think it's a feeding of the flesh because I want to say I have something that you haven't had so you'll glory in the person rather than the person of the Holy Spirit and the person of, of Jesus. There are, in some low church segments, there are these tears of grace. In some cases, it is so extreme, there are churches that believe you can live perfect. It's called the doctrine of perfectionism. And again, a lot of sound Bible churches have stepped back because they get intimidated by people's quote-unquote experiences. Let me tell you a couple of things. The Bible never says there are two kinds of Christians. Not once. When you took Jesus by faith, you got all the Holy Spirit equally. So we have some here in this room that have been concert, uh, converted to Jesus within the last year. And we have some in this room, like myself, that have been a, a believer over 50 years or even longer, right? In some cases. The person who has just come to Jesus has as much of the Holy Spirit as I do or somebody who's been saved longer than I have. So I want to encourage you with that. First of all, this. You have all of the Holy Spirit. And so through the perversions of sensationalism and in trying to lead people into a, a, a mystical experience, what the Bible actually says, and I referred to it last week in Romans chapter 6 and in Romans chapter 8, we all have the Spirit because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 it says, we are all baptized by the Spirit into one body. Now, that in a secondary way is referring to water baptism, but it is speaking of the act of the Holy Spirit. In the early New Testament period, just as Jesus told these apostles of what he would do with it, as the gospel ex expands further and further in the New Testament, 
um, that experience of the baptism and the completion of the New Testament, it, it kind of faded out. So people kind of look for this extra experience of the Holy Spirit. And first of all, we want to begin with this, is that you have all of the Holy Spirit. And when you read at the end of some of Paul's epistles and he says to pray in the Spirit, that doesn't mean an ecstatic speech or some gibberish language. It just means to pray according to the will of God. That's all it is. Each of us that know Jesus, not only in this room, but across the globe, have all of the Holy Spirit. You have them all. And the Holy Spirit, I think of him like this. He is the silent member of the Trinity in that he points us to Jesus. So the Father sent the Son, the Son accomplished redemption and ascended back to heaven and then the Father and the Son sent the Spirit, and the Spirit, of course, directs the church until Jesus returns. And you can read that in the Athanasian Creed. That's one of the reasons why we read creeds. The Holy Spirit is the silent member of the Trinity, and what I mean by that, His ministry is to point people to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is the God-man that took on flesh, that led in the conversion of man through his life, death, and resurrection. So the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit points us to the truth of the gospel. Through the words of God, many in this room not only know this, but they assent to the truths of the gospel to be true, and they are trusting in Christ alone to save them. But for some of you, that might not be you. And how you know that the Holy Spirit is awakening your heart in regeneration is that you hear the words of the gospel that God himself is holy and he will not stand sin in his presence for, uh, for, for eternity. As a matter of fact, James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if you are guilty in one point of the law, you're guilty of it all because God is holy. And we are sinners. We are sinners not only by the things that we do, but the things we don't do. We are sinners by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We are sinners in thought. God knows my thoughts, words, and deeds. And for you to become a Christian, you must believe that those things are true about God and about you. You must assent to them. Having known the components of the gospel, you must, in your mind, think those things are true. And then you must trust in Jesus by faith alone to save you. That's how you know you've been regenerated. Because you believe those things to be true. The Holy Spirit has pointed you to Jesus and the redemption that he brings. He points you to the truth of the gospel. That God is holy, that you are sinful, and that Christ alone can save you. And then, church, he leads us into the will of God. That's what the Spirit's doing. He's doing that right now. 
Jesus will uniquely come and dine with us, as we'll get to in just a moment, in the means of grace. So we've looked at, we've looked at the gospel, or the church and the gospel. Now we look at the church and the means of grace. And I, I kind of want to help, for those of you that may not understand this completely, why this is so essential. The church and the means of grace were established and or ordained by Christ himself. And so, baptism and, and, and the Lord's Supper are the two sacraments. But they're more than just ordinances. They are, in fact, sacraments. They are ordinances in that Jesus established them in the Great Commission and that Jesus established them um, at, at the sup, uh, Passover meal to transition into the Lord's Supper. The sacraments, please listen to this because this will be helpful for you, are the signs and seals to the new covenant. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper. The signs point to. The signs point to and the seals are the promise of. So, the signs of both the waters of baptism and the bread and the wine, we recognize Christ's benefits, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died and was buried, that Jesus rose again, preaches the gospel. And so the experience of baptism was not only just essential for me, but it's always essential for us when we witness people who take Jesus by faith Fresh and anew, our church experiences the grace that God provides in the signs which are pointed in the waters of baptism. Baptism is for entrance into the church. So people you know, shouldn't just be going, oh yeah, you're a Christian, man. Let's just, let's just go to Metro Beach, man. I'll just dunk you and go on away. No, baptism always connected people to Christ's mission, to a local church. It is a sign, it is symbolized that God has saved my life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then, past that entrance, the Lord Jesus sustains me in his grace and the bread and the wine are the signs that Jesus sacrificed his body and that he shed his blood. And that it was that sacrifice known in the singular word of the cross that God sustains us in his grace. So the signs point to Christ's benefit. The seals, when we experience them, are the promise of. The seals are the believer's interest. Man, I want to see people baptized. If I were to be baptized again, I'd get it over again, but that's not necessary. That was the entrance into the body of Christ. But I, I take the bread and the wine to experience the promises of the benefits that God gave us in saving us. The seals are the, the interests that are confirmed in our hearts by faith, but they're tangibly witnessed because people get dunked. They go in dry, they come out wet because people taste the bread 
and the wine, and they know that what Jesus experienced genuinely happened. It is the benefit. We affirm our faith when we are sustained by his grace in the workings of the cross. The sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist mark us that I belong to Christ. And so, yes, it is a memorial. Yes, there are symbols here, but there's also more. Christ's very presence is with us uniquely through his means of grace. They come to us under the preaching of the word in a mystical way. God is transforming hearts and he's building lives through the words. These are our weapon. The words of God come. They give us through the means of grace. And then the sacraments, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper, which were ordained by Christ himself as the only two sacraments. And then, of course, along with this, we pray. We pray throughout the service. We pray together. We pray on our own. Why? Because it's through prayer. When we pray according to the Spirit, our hearts are united to the will of God. And church, that's not mystical. God's not playing a nutshell game on you, trying to twist you around. It's the known will of God. And as you obey the known will of God, He builds your life. The Holy Spirit, in the means of grace, is for our sanctification. And as you have the Holy Spirit in you and I do in me, sanctification is not instantaneous. It's lifelong. It's fighting with and this internal warfare with patterns of sin. It's gaining and getting victory, and yet no Christian is out without completely without sin until glorification. We saw that a few weeks ago. We're justified by faith. We are being sanctified in the picture of Aeneas. We will one day be glorified in the, the raising of Tabitha from the dead. Sanctification is long, is lifelong, and no two people in this room are at the same spot. You know, you might be in a spot right now where things are going great. And God is, is leading, and it's something he's always leading, but you can see it just like in a real clear and, and vivid way, and sometimes you are going through some hardships. Could have lost a spouse in death. Could be going through a divorce. Could have lost a parent, a child. And so things are difficult, and God is bringing you along. He, is, he, is, he has saved you. He is separating you from your sin to ultimately be with him. We are being justified. Everyone that knows Jesus is being justified. Now, here's the key. Because you're probably sitting there wondering, why do some people grow faster than others? Well, I think to some degree, if you look at Romans 12, 3, there's, there's a degree of the benefits of grace. But there's also, in our part, 
a role in sanctification. And since the means of grace, which are the word of God, the preaching of the word as the church is gathered, the experience of the sacraments in baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer, when we neglect those means, we suffer spiritual loss. When you aren't getting a consistent diet of that, it's like eating. Man, do I like to eat too much. I don't know. I don't know if that's such a thing. When you neglect the gathering of the saints to come under the word of God, when you neglect to, if you're professing Jesus, you haven't been baptized or you're not taking in the table or you're not praying, friends, you are, you're harming, you're damaging your, your Christian life. And Christians that neglect the means of grace are given to all sorts of temptations from Satan. They're also losing in the struggle against their flesh with the remaining sin that all of us have as we, we battle lifelong. Most of those are internal. We begin to give ourselves to the world's system. And the world's system denies God's sexual ethic of marriage. Marriages that are ordained by God. We feel that. It's not that we don't hate. We, of course we don't hate people. We want, we want them to come out of the darkness. But when you neglect the means of of grace for your life as a Christian, you are weakening in the faith. But when you give yourself to them, God grows you. He makes you stronger as His will gets revealed to you in the words of God. You know, when you neglect the means of grace, your mind goes to all sorts of sinful imaginations. It affects every one of us. And you know why it's true? Because you're still in the flesh. In the Christian life, the temptation from Satan, the, the means of our own flesh. And the flesh is not talking about this. It's talking about your sinful appetites of, of lust and greed and consumption. And that's what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about the flesh and then giving yourself to the world's system. God hasn't made us a part of the world. He's called us out of the world. You are not passive in sanctification. Rather, you are striving to follow Jesus, to pursue him in holiness, because Jesus is a king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master of my dark, hidden parts that the world cannot see. God, help me to deal with my sin. And so sure, sin is, sin is finished, right? Jesus himself has won our war. But we don't passively go through life in an antinomian way, giving ourselves as a license to sin. Why? Because Jesus just paid it. We'll just live in sin. 
That's a, a horrible view of Christianity, and it's a false view of Christianity. Just as it is a false view of Christianity back in Acts chapter 11 to add anything to Jesus to save you. That's legalism. Church, Jesus has called us a people to be distinct. And you and I are waging war. And again, I say it's not with guns and bombs and knives. It's with the Father. It's with the Son. It's with the Spirit. It's in the waters of baptism. It's in the bread and the wine. And all of those things are beautifully wrapped up in love. Love for God. Love for each other. And then love for those people who are in a dark world that don't have Christ. We sang a, a song, you know, when you were a kid. Hide it under a bushel. No. Let your light shine. Go to this world. Preach the gospel to you. Guess what? Some of them are going to hate your guts over it. But it's the only thing that's going to save them. All wrapped up in love. That's our motive. We do it out of love for God. Because God loves me. God loves me. He died for me and he saved me. Honestly, I feel like Peter in John chapter 21. When he says, do you love me? Because I think of my, my failures. Jesus asked Peter three times. He never uses the word agape because agape is perfect love. He uses the word phileo. And I believe the reason why Peter said that was because he, he was seeing himself in his sin. But church, you love God. You can love God because God saves you. God, help us to love each other because that's an identifying mark that we're a follower of Jesus. And then God, help us. Oh, Lord, please help us to tell our world about Christ. Let's pray. Father, now as we come to this, the table of grace, this, this means of grace, where both the signs of Christ's benefit and your promises to us are sealed in the bread and in the wine. Bless your people now as they take it. Build them in the faith. Lord, for the one that doesn't know you, may your Holy Spirit regenerate their heart in pointing them to Jesus. May they see, God, your holiness, their own wretched sinfulness, and the beauty of Christ who alone can save them. We ask these things and pray for them in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, you may rise and go receive the elements.